Well, the action of the story starts really in the, um, in the 1970s, at the tail end of the 1970s. Those times, I mean, this is going to be a trip down memory lane for most of us, but it's not a very happy time, the 1970s. It wasn't just time of great peril for companies. It was the time of great peril for the country as a whole. Um, Britain was known as the sick man of Europe. The stock market, by the way, was lower in the mid-1970s than it was in 1940, with the Nazis 20 miles away ready to invade. So it just shows you, it gives you an idea of how low the morale was in the country as a whole. There was a survey done by one of the major newspapers to say who was the most powerful person in the country. And you would have expected that normally to have been the Prime Minister, but it wasn't. It was Jack Jones, who was the, the Secretary of the Transport and General Workers' Union. And by the way, he really wasn't in charge. There were some stormtroopers called shop stewards. They were actually in charge. Now, did they have a plan? No, they didn't. And so part of the story is really how we came to terms with them at Jaguar, but also how the nation as a whole did. And the story isn't just about turning Jaguar around, but it's also uh, about the things that Margaret Thatcher did uh, with her government, because without her and without the legislation that she brought in to basically um, put the control for the unions back into the hands of the members and not the shop stewards, um, but for th that legislation, we wouldn't have existed and nobody would be trying to manufacture anything in this country at all. So the story starts, I, I used to work for British Leyland and I'd set up a business called Unipart and it was one of the very few profitable parts of, of what was then British Leyland. The government bought British Leyland. Uh, I have to say it was a disaster. I left. But Michael Edwards came along, and he basically, he was a tough guy, he is a tough guy, and he was basically going to set to, to do what could be done with BL. He looked to see who'd ever done anything that was successful, and I was one of the people. I'd actually moved over to Canada, and I was working for Massey Ferguson, and he invited me to come back in 1979 um, to run Jaguar, Rover, and Triumph. And I said, no. I said, look, it's too difficult. You're not going to be able to make motor cars with a government, with a labor government. It's just not going to be possible. Um, I, no. But anyway, a year later, Margaret Thatcher had been elected. Uh, it was the biggest single turnaround from one party to another since 1945. And most of the turnaround had come from skilled, uh, skilled uh, people working in industry who knew that what was going on just simply was never going to work. And I listened to her talking about how she was going to put together the duties and responsibilities of trade unions and somehow or other make sense of the discipline 
that was going to be required to run the country. So, um, my, uh, Michael Edwards then offered me the job of running Jaguar on its own. And I did a sort of deal with him that if we were going to turn around the massive losses that Jaguar was making, it could perhaps become independent of BL cars. We could be an independent car company again. And I thought there was just a chance that we could make a success of it. Um, the first day was very dramatic. When I got to the factory at Browns Lane, the whole lot were on strike. Uh, you know, the full Monty, everything was there, braziers, people linking arms and everything. And I thought, well, this is going to be um, a bad day. This is not good. And I, I started talking to the guys uh, on the, on the uh, picket line. And actually, the, 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 the issue was a very big one. Michael Edwards, to make, to make sense of BL as a whole, was insisting that all hourly paid workers were going to be paid one of five grades, but it was going to be the same across the whole of BL cars. And the reason for that was the shop stewards had been having leapfrog strikes, everybody jumping ahead of somebody else, and they were on strike all the time about terms and conditions. So he said, fair enough, we'll make everybody have the same. That meant, of course, that the assembly workers at Jaguar were going to be paid exactly the same as the assembly workers at Austin over in Longbridge. And they basically said to me, well, they've done everything else to us. They might as well close us down. They might as well shut this place down. So I thought I was going to be the first chief executive of a car company never to make a single car. Because <laughs> I could see that I knew Michael Edwards wasn't going to back down. And I could see these guys weren't going to back down either. Anyway, I managed to start talking to the shop stewards themselves, and I thought the only way I'm going to get anything here is to, help, is to get the shop stewards to help me get the workforce back. And it was the only time I have to tell you that they were helpful to me, but actually they did. They could see there was a chance, and the one big card I kept playing was, if we can make a success of Jaguar cars, we can become independent again. And then the grading structures that we have will be our affair and not the affair of BL cars. So under that very flimsy pretext, eventually the shop stewards decided to support me and persuade them to come back. Incidentally, uh, I discovered later on, and it just gives you an idea of the way these things run, they had a whole series of mass meetings, but actually the men had voted to stay out on strike. But because it was all very complicated, the shop stewards said, well, you really voted to go back to work. <laughs> and persuaded them all that they were going to go back to work. So, so they did. But when we got started, and I made a stock of the problems, the shop stewards were not the only problem I had. The quality was appalling. Productivity was only a quarter of what it was at Mercedes-Benz. The faults per car were three times what we would have, at what they would have at Mercedes-Benz. Uh, we didn't have enough engineers to design any new cars. 
Uh, I thought we needed about a thousand people to design a new car, new engine and new car. Uh, so we had to make do with what we had. But luckily, the Series 3 XJ6 was a beautiful car. It had been facelifted by Pininfarina, and I thought it was the basis of turning the company around. I thought maybe with this car, if we can only make it work, we can actually, we can actually sell them. So the first program we, we, we started was basically the Hearts and Mind program, where we tried to gain control of the shop floor from the shop stewards. We had to give the people a reason to believe in what we were doing, and we had to make people believe it was possible, but also that they themselves had to make their minds up. They had to bring their enthusiasm and brains to work as well as their hands and feet, because we had so many problems, we could only solve it if all 10,000 people who worked there were going to actually help to solve all the problems. Uh, by the way, the Hearts of Mind program started with a chicken supper with wine. We created a video. It was actually um, uh, Juliet Stevenson, the comedian, she made a video of pretending to be a car and how when she was badly handled, she was really furious. And when she was being looked after, she was quite purring. And it was a beautiful piece of, uh, of, of theater. And we had a director at every one of the meetings, meetings of about this size, and we, we asked all of the workforce to bring their wives with them. We thought the wives might be tougher than the shop stewards. <laughs> and we thought, you know, if they could see that we, the management, were really doing our best to try and encourage everybody to be enthusiastic about the future, maybe they would persuade the troops to join in. Well, it all worked extraordinarily well. And we actually had to, de we delegated basically the process improvements to the shop floor, and we helped people with um, statistical process control. Everybody was doing it. Um, and we started to see improvements occurring. But the biggest quality problems actually came from our suppliers. And so we, the directors, decided that we would take on a number of each, and I took on five of them, uh, five, the five worst suppliers. Um, one of them, by the way, was making steering gear and the pump, steering pump, and actually uh, something like 40% of them failed in the first year of warranty. Now, you wouldn't think there was anybody could be making something as bad as that. And when I went to see the factory and I took a whole team of people down with me, I met the, uh, the man who owned it. And he was a property man. He bought the factory for its land. <laughs> so I, I explained everything that he was going to have to do. And he explained to me that he was going to have to spend more money on overhauling the factory and putting new equipment in than he had on buying the the factory in the, in the first place. And he said, it doesn't make any sense to me. I said, well, if you don't do this, Jaguar's not going to survive. And it's got to be done quickly. We haven't, weeks, that's all we've got, and you must help. And strangely enough, he took this proposition, 
And he did a magnificent job. And within a very short period of time, uh, very few of them were failing. And it was uh, an extraordinary thing. And what struck me as being very strange was how all this appalling quality could be going on without you know, proper feedback and people working hard to improve quality. The, the, worst, the other worst one was, was Joseph Lucas, who were actually, I have to say, um, they made a whole load of stuff for us. And I thought, this is going to be impossible. So I went to see Robert Bosch to see if I could get all the stuff made there. And I, I, they said they were very polite and they're very nice, but they, they said, uh, no, they, they weren't going to do it. And I thought it was a cartel, but actually, it wasn't that. It was just simply they didn't think Jaguar was going to survive long enough to supply us. So it gave you an idea, gives you another idea of how bad the situation was. So we had to persuade Joseph Lucas to improve. And I was again surprised when, the, uh, when the, I, I made my presentation to the board of directors. They accepted it. And the basis of them accepting it was I, I'd done surveys of our US customers, because about half the people who can afford to buy a Jaguar lived at that time in the United States. I did a whole load of um, market research with the owners, and they were very specific about all the things that were going wrong. And they couldn't, Joseph Lucas could not hide from the fact that most of their components were very substandard when compared to their Mercedes-Benz competition. And I went to the first of the Lucas factories about two or three months later, and it was like a, like a dark satanic mill. And, <laughs> and I thought, surely they've done something. And, and the plant manager said, yes, see. And over there, I could see some brightness. <laughs> and yes, it, we went through this, this door, and it said, Jaguar quality starts here. And we had like an operating theater. People were in there doing their jobs beautifully. And it was quite extraordinary. And I said, well, OK, is this all bullshit? What are you going to do with the rest of it? And he said, no, this is the right way. We're going to do everything. But we've started with your products first. So it gives you some idea of the enormity of our task, because practically all of our suppliers were supplying us with substandard, with substandard things. And the turnaround was, was, really much, was really quite quick. Um, productivity started to improve. We reduced the man hours for making an, a, an XJ6 from 800 down to 300 by simply doing process improvements, most of them done by the, uh, the foreman and the quality circles and process improvement. And it was a meticulous thing where everybody was doing their jobs and doing it well. And it, and it really was an extraordinary thing. But then, as we could see the cars were improving, uh, by the way, the, I didn't get any letters saying the cars were good for the first 12 months. And the first one I got was from a, an art gallery owner in Chicago. And he wrote to me to say he bought his Jaguar as a beautiful sculpting to put outside his shop. And he said, imagine my surprise when I found that it worked. <laughs> and 
he explained, he explained that he'd been to a McEnroe Connors tennis match that didn't finish till two o'clock in the morning. His friends' cars wouldn't start, but his Jaguar did, and very smugly, he drove them all home. And so that was my first letter. And so I thought, if I'm going to get volume, I'm going to get it from the United States. So I went over to explain to the, um, to the um, American dealers what our program was going to be. Incidentally, I didn't mention right at the start, when I, when I started, the Jaguar could only paint three colors, red, yellow, and white. And the yellow was so bad, it, you, couldn't buy, you couldn't buy one. It was so, such an unattractive color. So it's basically only two. And it was because there was a f problem with the paint plant uh, at Castle Bromwich, which was un run by Austin Rover. I managed to persuade them to give me the plant, and we did eventually fix the, uh, the paint issues. And it's all in the book. So when I went to meet the American dealers, <clears throat> already some of the good quality was coming through, and they had a big range of colors. But anyway, when I went to see the, I had five meetings around the United States, and the first one was in New York. And when I got to the dealers, I, could, I just went in amongst them to hear what they were talking about. And uh, <clears throat> one of them said, why is he over here? And one said, well, he's probably going to tell us they're closing down. And because um, they closed MG and they closed Triumph, I guess they're going to close Jaguar. So they were greatly relieved when I started my speech by saying, I've only got one program, and it's quality. Jaguar introduced the new colors to its dealers. All those, I'm going to shoot the guy with the yellow spray gun. I'm, he's never going to use it again. And they all came up with a great big cheer. And I said, and Jaguar has introduced its dealers to the round tire. Oh, part of our problem was the Dunlop tires. They had hysteresis. And if they stayed still for more than a week, there'd be a flat spot on the wheel. And, and so they were, so they, they, it, we had, we had, I said, and we introduced our North American dealers to the round tire. And there was a great big roar to the radio aerial that comes down as well as goes up. Another great big cheer. And they were enthusiastically applauding every one of the improvements we'd already made. And then I started telling them about the other improvements. And then I said, oh, and one thing, <clears throat> the suppliers are all joining in on this and they will be paying your labor to put things right. Every single one will now have to pay, not for the, just the replacement part, but also the dealer's labor, which usually was handled by the car manufacturer. But I'd got the suppliers to agree that they were going to do it. And one incredulous voice said, does that include the Prince of Darkness? <laughs> and I said, who, who is the Prince of Darkness? And they said, why, Joseph Lucas. It's, it's, it's the only lighting company that tells its customers to be home before dark. And so all kinds of people then, they all started, they all started telling me Joseph Lucas sto stories. You know, why, why, is, why do the British drink warm beer? Because Joseph Lucas makes the refrigerators. So this is, but anyway. The dealers, I have to say, those American dealers 
were the, one of the strongest reasons why we survived. We were only making about 15,000 cars a year. 15, cars a year. Uh, it was about half break even. We would need to build it, the sales up very rapidly. BL were getting sick of the losses that we were making in the first year. We'd concentrated on nothing but, um, but uh, the quality. And we really needed some big volumes to get the, these now beautiful cars and improving quality cars sold. So it was the US dealers who were going to do it. And I had a grave difficulty persuading BL that I was going to be able to lift the volume up from 15,000 in 1981 to 22,000 in 1982. BL had never had a success. They'd never actually had sales increases. They'd only had sales reductions. So they just didn't believe this 50% improvement we were going to get. And we could only see that we were going to get it from the United States. So I brought all the US dealers over and I explained to everybody on, in the workforce that they had to persuade the US dealers that they were now making good cars and they, the hearts were in it and they were going to have to persuade the US dealers to buy more cars. Well, it was a wonderful thing. When these dealers were going around, the, America, the chairman of the dealer council came from Dallas and he had a sort of uh, string tie on. Everybody could see he was an American. He was rolling down like this. And everybody grabbed hold of him and showed him what they were doing. And he, and he said to me at one stage, John, when are you going to take the movie actors away and bring the workforce back? <laughs> so it was, a really, it was a really huge thing. And at the end, I had all the dealers in a meeting like this at the end of the visit, two or three days later. And I asked them, well, what was going to be their sales forecast? Right now, they'd only given me something like a, uh, uh, a forecast from the United States of 6,000, and I needed 10,000 to break even. And I wanted them to improve their sales by 50%. And eventually, they said, one after another at the tables, said they could do it, till they were all standing up saying they could do 50% more. And I brought the band of the Royal Marines in and we played Land of Hope and Glory. <laughs> and that, that is how we made our sales forecast for 1982. And in fact, we actually sold almost 10,000 cars in 1982 in the United States. And it was the basic reason why the company made a profit in 1982 and we never lost money again. So very quickly, um, I began to worry about a new, a new model program. I was being rushed into trying to develop a new car by BL, and I came to the conclusion that we now was the time to leave BL. And it was at the same time the Thatcher government, instead of giving money to BL, they wanted them to make some for themselves. And they contacted me to say, now that Jaguar is profitable, do you think it's better that you be on your own? And I said, yes, let's leave BL cars. And the Thatcher government encouraged BL to allow us to separate. And we privatized the company in 1984, only four years after I'd arrived, and we were making 100 million pounds a year profit. So it was a really very rapid turnaround. Once we'd got 
out of BL cars, we could start developing things like a new engineering center. We, could, um, we went back into racing. We started developing our Le Mans car. And uh, something like four years later, we, we won at Le Mans. Um, so a lot of things that were impossible. We also put a, the new XJ6, the XJ40, into a huge testing program so that when we launched it, it actually worked which was a, a unique thing for a British car company to launch a car that actually worked at the time you launched it. Unfortunately, it's a small company as Jaguar. Very soon, everybody seemed to want to buy it. Not only General Motors, but Ford, BMW wanted to buy it. And so there was a ferocious um, load of people always coming along saying they wanted to buy the company. We had a golden share owned by the government which protected us, but only for five years. With the five years running out, Ford finally came along and insisted to the British government that they be allowed to buy Jaguar. And that's indeed what happened. So it was, um, it was very sad for me uh, because I thought that um, Ford would make a poor owner of, um, of Jaguar cars. And indeed, for 15 years, they ran it, but they never made any money. And they really, apart from one, the XK8, which we designed anyway uh, before I left, they didn't really ever try to make any magnificent motor cars. And it's interesting that when the Ford people were going around the factory, one of the, um, one of the workmen said, how long are you going to own it for? And the Chairman of Ford of Europe said, oh, a long time. It'll be 10 or 15 years. And that's turned out to be about right. But when Ratan Tata was asked how long he was going to own Jaguar for, he said forever. And I think that's the, that's, the, that's the style if you actually want to make magnificent luxury cars. In, in sort of summing up, I would say that the, the turnaround itself um, where we concentrated on quality, on uh, the processes that gave us quality and productivity, on the, the human uh, capital of, of training our workforce. We created a, basically almost an open university for our um, workforce to train themselves. Uh, we were vastly undereducated compared with our Japanese or German competitors. And we put this open university in. So we concentrated on, on processes which allowed the workforce to bring their brains and enthusiasm to work as well as their hands and feet. And I think those are the key things that you would do in any turnaround today. I also think that the Thatcher government are often criticized in a most ridiculous way because actually they enabled manufacturing to be done in the United Kingdom. Without the secret ballot and control of picketing and the elimination of the closed shop. By the way, the unions did have a very strong hand of cards. Uh, mass meetings controlled by somebody with the megaphone is a very difficult thing for people who don't, who oppose to, to, to uh, make their, their ideas felt. Picketing, 
brutal picketing, not allowing anybody to go to work who wants to, and the closed shop where you had to be a member of the union, otherwise you couldn't work. So these were brutal things. And I noticed with some horror that Jeremy Corbyn was saying he wanted to abolish these, uh, these rules and laws that uh, Margaret Thatcher had brought in. That would, have be, that would be a disaster for any company. So that gives you a rough idea, and I'd like to respond to you with your questions uh, when you're ready. Thank you. Oh, Bill was, um, <clears throat> I remember when I started, I thought it would be a nice thing to have him as president of Jaguar. Uh, by the way, when I got to Browns Lane, they'd called it the large car assembly plant number two, Leyland Cars. So I thought if we were going to get our identity back, it would be nice to have on our note paper, President Sir William Lyons. So I went along to see him. And I said to him, would he like to be president? <clears throat> and he said, Elad, didn't anybody tell you? I already am. <laughs> but everybody had forgotten that he still was the president. I think I went to see him about every month or so in the five or six years he was around. He died about 1985 or 86. And all that time, he was my mentor and we worked very closely together. And he was a fine man, and he really did enjoy those final few years. He came to help in the styling studio. It was very interesting. He had a stick, and he was, he was a bit shaky. But he got to the styling studio, and the stick was thrown to one side. And he actually lost about 20 years in age when he started uh, looking at the cars. And he was really a master of detail. Even then, he really was a master of detail. Thank you, gentlemen here. So John, ooh, yes. thank you for saying What do you think of the current JLR and the range of cars that they're producing? Um, I think that um, they've done a magnificent job with the Range Rover, Land Rover and Range Rover range of products, they're excellent and I think they have got the market right and they understand what they're doing. I think they've only just started to produce what they want to produce. Uh, I think we'll be very well surprised at how well the XE and the XF does. I've got an F-Type, I think it's a lovely car, beautiful car to drive. I think the new 4x4 a Jaguar will be a big success. So I think they're just getting into their stride. I think there's a huge amount of potential there for them, and I, I'm certain they'll get it right. Thank you. Question over this side, gentleman in the corner. Uh, so John, um, I had the privilege of being taught to race with Wynne Percy, who raced uh, for you, of course, Tom Walkinshaw. From the financial side of it, did it pay off for you guys to run those XJSs? I know, obviously, even the Group C, so I'm not sure if you were too involved with the Group C's at the end. But oh, yeah, I, we, we, I developed, well, I developed with Tom the, the Group C cars as well. Yes, we basically went for sponsorship. And when we went into Group C, 
Basically, we paid for most of the XJS racing in the UK and the US ourselves. But to go into Group C was going to be about 10 or 15 million pounds a year. We went for sponsors and we had Silk Cut as our sponsor in, in the UK. And um, Castrol was our sponsor in the US. And it was basically a break-even race program. So that was break-even. And all we got on top of that was increased sales. So if you, you know, it seems we wanted to get this whole spirit of getting our engineers, and our engineers work very closely with Tom Walkinshaw's engineers. I, I wanted our engineers to be basically trying to design better components than anybody else. And there's no way of testing that better than in racing. So it was a really deliberate attempt to actually get our engineers involved with Tom and his group to basically produce better components. And it was a great success. So it didn't, it didn't cost as much financially. I often used to worry about it at the beginning of the year if we hadn't got the full sponsorship program there. But it, we'd, we had to find about 15 million pounds a year. Of course, you couldn't go racing these days with 15 million pounds, but in those days, that was enough to get our programs up and running. But you certainly saw sales increase. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, we, I mean, I mean, there was all those things we did. Certainly, nobody was ever sitting in the back of a car when I was there uh, eating uh, their lunch. No, sir. But um, I, I think that it all added up. We had... Um, People had to bring their enthusiasm to work, and they had to feel responsible for what they did, and they had to feel as though they controlled what they were doing. And that's, why, that's where the statistical process control works, because everybody is doing their, controlling their own work. Um, it was interesting that um, at one stage we had to check every windscreen for water leaks. But as, the, as we were controlling the, uh, the body plant at Castle Bromwich, the profiles got better and better and closer and closer to what the designers had in mind. Until this, and the girl supervisor who was running, putting in the windscreens, noticed that the profile of the, of the, of the windscreen was now more accurate than the glass. And if we took half one of the suppliers away, the glass exactly matched the profile. And if that was the case, we probably didn't need to search for water leaks anymore. And she was right. That particular move saved us about 20 million pounds a year in cost. It was absolutely astonishing that we'd got the windscreens to the point where they were more accurate than the glass itself. Now that was the kind of thing that, of course, later on you're able to do with robotics. But to start with, we had to do it with our hands and feet, and it was actually a big breakthrough. So most of the process controls were very, very simple things that were simply reducing variance of one body to the next. Did she get a bonus? She certainly did. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Gentlemen, here is the front, Sir John. Thank you, Sir John. Um, I was really uh, heartened to hear that uh, when Tata uh, acquired Jaguar, that uh, they said that they, they loved the brand. 
Um, and I, I think it's one of those questions that a lot of us must be asking ourselves. With uh, BMW, Rolls-Royce owned by BMW, we've got um, you know, uh, Bentley owned by, by uh, Volkswagen, um, yeah, and Jaguar Land Rover by Tata. Are British brands in safer hands when they're owned by Anglophile to foreign owners? Well, obviously, I mean, I was heartbroken when I had to sell the company. But when Ford came to buy us, um, they said they had $7.5 billion in the bank. And they paid 2 and a half of that for us. Uh, it was a huge price, five times our asset value. I think the governments in the UK have to be much more willing to have golden shares in companies and protect them if they're too small to protect themselves with their share price. The problem was, you know, two and a half billion dollars was not a lot of money to the Ford Motor Company. And so they were well able to afford it. In the main, if we look at the way that British business has gone, it's been taking over just as many businesses overseas as are taken over here. Uh, it's just that our businesses are typically banks and oil companies and things like this. But I do believe that governments should think very seriously about protecting individual companies and not allowing ownership to, uh, to be taken out of the hands of the people running it. And I think that Jaguar would have been further ahead today if we'd have been left running it rather than let Ford buy it, who basically didn't really understand the luxury car business. Yes, sir, just uh, Tim. Um, what's your feeling looking back at it about uh, the, the rider report, the, the recommendation to maintain a volume manufacturer within the UK? Did you go along with that, or, or did you think that there should be more specialism like Jaguar? Well, I think the Ryder Report was a very rushed thing. Uh, I was running Unipart at the time, which was very profitable, and they never came to see us. So how they could <laughs> do a report on a company without even meeting the people running the only bit that was profitable seems very strange, but they didn't. Um, they had some very, very strange ideas. I think Wedgwood Ben, who was the Minister for Industry at the time, I think he wanted state ownership of BL. And he was willing for anything for that to be done. I think it would have been much better to have left BL in the hands of Donald Stokes, actually. I think that eventually they'd have got round to doing something better than they were. And I think they'd have made a better fist of it than the people that, uh, that Lord Ryder put in or that went in to run it. It was a farce. There was about a five-year period until Michael Edwards appeared between the, late the, the early 1970s and 1979 when he appeared, where it was a farce. Absolutely crazy. And I think government makes a very bad manager. I don't know of anything they manage well. You know, they might 
when we have a war, they do the army quite well, but I think that's because other people come in and run it for them. Maybe they run the police force well, I don't know. But looking at things like the health service and education, I don't see any evidence of really great work being done by governments. So I think it was a mistake. Yes, one more question on this side. Um, Mr. John, what's your, what's your opinion of the demise of Rover? The demise of Rover? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I was looking over. <laughs> the demise of Rover. Well, um, Land Rover, of course, is, is doing very well indeed. Um, the, I think... When it's interesting that if people at BL, BLMC, had concentrated on quality and productivity, they could have turned some of those vehicles into great vehicles as we did with the Series 3 XJ6. They were really trying to do the wrong things. They were trying to design new products when actually they didn't have enough engineers to design the products. When I got to Jaguar, we only had 200 engineers in the engineering department, and I thought I needed 1,000 to do a one and a half car line with the XJ6 and the XJS, and later on, XJ40 and uh, the F-Type. So actually, that's what you need, and we only had 200. Now, they were, all the BL companies were trying to do the same thing. When I first got in touch with BL back in the early 1970s, the cars weren't bad from a design point of view, and they were quite competitive. What they should have done at the early 1970s was concentrate on quality and productivity. And then, with the higher productivity, get enough engineers there, basically, to engineer new products properly. So, really, Rover was just swept up with the, um, with the demise of all of the car companies. Only the really strong brands of Jaguar and Land Rover actually managed to make it. Uh, but the, I don't know if you remember the SD1. That was the one that was basically taking over from the very successful Triumph and very successful Rover. And it wasn't a bad car. If it had been well designed and it had quality in it, it could have been a success, but actually it just simply wasn't well enough put together. It wasn't well enough designed. It was conceptually not a bad car, but it just simply wasn't good enough. So it was just accidental. It just went away with all the other car brands. Gentlemen over in the middle. Any ideas about how is going to Where's it going to go in the future? I think I would like to see them concentrating more on the luxury end of the range. I don't think the XJ6, XJ8, the big, uh, the big car, is actually quite good enough to make it in the United States. And, and I think they've got to concentrate a great deal more on basically competing with Mercedes-Benz and Bentley right at the top end of the range. I think the XF and the FE and the XE 
and the F-Type are all excellent cars, but I think the top end of the range needs a lot of work doing. And I think that's where they'll make a lot of money. Thank you. Any more questions? Yes, Gareth. You mentioned uh, the Thatcher government. And I, um, I wondered whether, I'm assuming you met Mrs. Thatcher, and I wondered what impressions she had of, of uh, what she was like to deal with. I, I was actually a part of a committee that was working to get her re-elected in 1987 and I worked quite closely with her. She was a very good manager. She worked exactly the same way that good managers in business would work. If you had a good idea, she would get you and the politician and the civil servant connected with the idea to basically go through it, to see whether it should be done, and to see whether it could be implemented. And if it could, she'd say to the civil servant and the politician, go out and do it, and report back when you've done it. And actually, she was a very, very good manager. And I think that the introduction of the, the trade union legislation was exquisitely done, and it worked very well indeed. And the communication that she had with us in the business, in business, was excellent. And it, was, and it worked because she'd done it well. I mean, I think, however, she probably stayed as prime minister too long. I think, you, I think that amount of power goes to your head. And I think by 1987, she should have handed over to somebody else. Uh, because I think most of her excellent work was done in the early part of her, her work. But she was a very fine manager. And I think we have an industry in this country which wouldn't exist if she hadn't tamed the trade unions and put them back under the control of the members and not the shop stewards. Okay, thank you. Any more questions? Yes, sir, right back. Just, just hang on until we get the mic to Anyone over this side while we're... Um, okay? One over there. Yeah, fine. So, John, um, are German engineers truly better than British or do they just have more money? Uh, I think they're very similar. Um, but you can't try and design a new product with 200 engineers when you need 1,000. You also need all the supply chain to be equally careful as you are. Um, it, but if I look back to 1980 when I started running Jaguar cars, actually I don't think we had any suppliers in the UK who were competent enough to supply us with a newly designed product. The engineering standards were simply not high enough. People were not putting enough effort into new product development, into research and development, and so on. So I think the engineers themselves are perfectly capable of being competitive. You see it in Formula One racing. You see it in, uh, you know, right at the, uh, at the pinnacle of performance in Formula One, you see it. There's no reason why they shouldn't be as good, but you can't do the impossible. You can only ask your engineers to do things if they've got the tools to do it, and you've got a supply chain which is capable of doing it. And so we had a very easy time, I think, in the 1960s, 
and we used the 1970s very badly. We should have been concentrating on quality and productivity instead of all the things that we did. You'll see if you read the book, I'm fairly critical of the way BLMC was run. They didn't really try to run it properly. They were not concentrating on the right things. They didn't close the unproductive plants. Government, by the way, was making um, companies expand out of the Midlands up into Liverpool and Scotland and South Wales. And all of those factories that they built uh, out in these remote places, to start off with, were very, very inefficient. And it was beyond the capabilities of the car companies to expand outside their basic plants. And there was a decade of investment wasted as people put these new plants into Halewood and, and um, Liverpool and Scotland and so on. They were just a complete waste of time and governments made them do that. So we really did. We had a world-class industry at the start of the 1960s. By the tail end of the 1970s, it was virtually all gone. And I think it was because people were not concentrating on quality, productivity, and putting proper engineering resources into designing new products. Gentlemen, the, uh, at the end of the day, we... Um, Sir John, uh, I'd like to ask that note. Uh, my first uh, Jaguar was next year, and that delightful mustard colour. <laughs> now, the car had been bought when, by Robbie Corbett, when he was in uh, pantomime in Coventry. <laughs> and uh, sometime later, I bought this car at auction. And uh, people used to say to me, how do you know it was Ronnie Corbett's Jaguar that you bought? I said, well, apart from the logbook, the seat was well bought and there were blocks on the pedals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think as uh, there's a lady here in the centre there that wished to ask a question. There we go. Which of the three colours was it? Yellow, it was the yellow one. Yes, madam. Yes, John, I'd just like to say that um, it's really lovely to see that you've got a passion for the Jaguar car, but also for a definite passion for the Jaguar workforce and long way it lasts. Thank you. Any more questions? Oh, there's one back there. Just while you're there, the gentleman is hand up now. Sir, Sir John. Just, uh, uh, how much influence did the have on the early stages of the XJ40 and uh, uh, why wasn't the V12 engine didn't go in early stages? Why was? Uh, and and uh, uh, why, why wasn't the V12 engine didn't go in for the XJ40 soon as Ah, well there's two or three strands of that. But actually the XJ40 started life about 1973. And Lord Stokes and John Barber turned it down because they didn't want to spend any money at Jaguar. They wanted to reserve it for the Austin Morris division. So actually, it had a very long gestation period. And that's completely wrong. You can't design things that way. Because you, you have, across a long period of time, you have, you have many design concepts going into the same car. Um, I wondered when we were privatized whether we, should start, whether we should have started again. Um, part of me was saying we should start again. Strangely enough, it was Bill Lyons who said, no, you don't need to. 
It's actually, we can make it with what we've got. So it was a very difficult set of decisions. The reason why the V12 wouldn't go in was because um, Bob Knight was being forced to put a V8 engine from Rover into the car. So he put some crash tubes in, which wouldn't allow the V8 to go in. <laughs> so we couldn't put the v a V8 in, we couldn't, we couldn't put the big V12 in. But we did put the V12 in later on. But right at the start, we couldn't put it in. Thank you. Yeah, next gentleman there, thank you very much. Uh, if you were selling a, a Jaguar Series 3 in, say, 1983 to 4 or 25,000 pounds in the UK, how much profit would that make to a... Uh... Well, we were extremely profitable in the mid-1980s. In 1985, I think we made 120 million pounds profit, and we made something like 40,000 cars. So, I guess it's... About 30,000 each. <laughs> no, wait a minute, let me just get that right. No, it would be 3,000 pounds. It would be about 10%. It was a pretty average profit margin. We were more or less in there with our German rivals. So if you sold the car for 3,000, the car price in January was 27,000 or 25? Oh, how much did... Um, well, the and uh, they, they usually kept on to their margin because we tried to supply, always we tried to undersupply the market. We never tried to push the cars. We'd always tried to sell one less than we could, make one less than we could sell. Yeah, but how much of the Well, it depends whether you want to just look at the variable costs or the fixed costs. If you look at the whole fixed costs, you have to go back to 120 million pounds from 40,000 cars, which I think is 3,000 pounds each. But that, that's paid for everything. The real question I'm asking is how much does a car cost Jaguar when it leaves, leaves the factory? So the metal, the labor, the materials, the Oh, the variable costs. Yeah. Oh, I imagine the variable costs would be about 20,000 pounds, something like that. So 30,000, so Yeah, don't forget you have fixed costs, yeah. and you also have engineering to pay for, and tooling, and all this sort of stuff. So the variable cost would be, it, there'd be a gross profit margin of about 40%. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, any other questions from this side? Any more questions? Yes. Two right at the front. Um, right here. Um, as you commented on um, the engineering skills and the um, problems that BLMC had and the demise of, of Rover, um, what about the demise of MG Rover? And the Phoenix 4, do you have any comment on that? And the? Phoenix 4. Phoenix 4. Ah, well. <clears throat> <laughs> um, it, it was a sad little story, was that, wasn't it? I mean, clearly they were in it for their own benefit. And uh, they, they didn't have a high moral tone, did they? Um, I, I think it was a, a tragedy. 
much better that they'd have actually sold it. It would have been better, there was a question about whether the Brits make good owners. It, we, those were bad owners of the company, and they would have been much better selling it to somebody else. They weren't fit people to own it. Um, the gentleman over this side here. Sir John? Um, can I ask you this? Which is your favourite Jaguar of all time? Which is the one you would like to have in your garage every day of the year? Do you know, I think one of the nicest ones that I, the one I really did like, was in the XJS convertible, V12. I thought that was an absolutely beautiful car. Thank you very much. Gentlemen over the far side, Sir <coughs> John, just in the corner there. So, John, um, were you at all involved when the um, B12 and the uh, 220 was dropped, of course, and um, the wonderful B6, if you're going to call it that, was put in it? Well, well, when I when I signed it off, it was a V12 um, XK220. That's what it was. But we handed it over to Tom Walkinshaw for him to manufacture it, and he was starting to think much more in terms of Formula One racing and uh, a six-cylinder engine. And in true entrepreneurial style, I put it in the book. He, have en he ended up with his own <laughs> XK XK one uh, two twenty, um, and actually, I, I was it was during the Ford takeover, and I have to say, my attention dropped, and I was no longer visiting him every month and following it all. And I think um, Tom decided he was working on his own here, and. Uh, when the Ford takeover occurred, the car came out after that, and by then I was no longer involved. I would have stuck to the original V12. It would have been a car, it? it would have been a much better car, and it would have been really a follow-on from the Le Mans winning cars. It would have been a similar kind of car. Yes. Any more questions, ladies? Yes, the gentleman there. So, you mentioned just in passing about Bob Knight and uh, maybe attempts to save Jaguar before you came along. Just interested in your um, commentary about your relationship with Bob Knight. Um, well, I wanted him to stay. By the way, there was a great deal of ambiguity between he was called managing director and I was called chief executive. And there aren't too many companies with a managing director and a chief executive. And I'm not sure how much BL had explained to Bob about my appearance. But I did want him to stay and I said he could concentrate on the engineering and I'd do all the rest. And I tried to get him to stay, but he, he decided he, he wanted to leave. Don't forget, he'd done a great deal to help Jaguar survive. Uh, I think without him, it would have been broken up. Incidentally, he was offered the job of being chief engineer of BL Cars, which he turned down, so he could stay at Jaguar. Any more questions, ladies and gentlemen? Yes. Um, John. States and they're the people who buy the quality cars. What about the emerging 
Com economies, China, in China, India, uh, maybe uh, oligarchs in Russia, you know. What's the sort of market in that of those emerging economies? Well, indeed, uh, yes. Uh, Jaguar already, Jaguar Land Rover have a plant in China. And they're opening another one in Brazil. And they're opening another one in Czechoslovakia. So they will have a number of overseas factories. We'll make that the final question right at the back. Thank you, Tim. So, John, right again. So, John, how much did the external economy of petrocurrency decimate the well, currency was always a very awkward thing. Um, I say it in the book. I remember meeting Paul Volcker, who was the chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve. And I was sitting next to him at a dinner, and he said to me, what do you do? And I said, well, I make cars, Jaguars, and mostly sell them in America. So he said to me, puzzled, <coughs> how do you know... So you're making them in pounds and selling them in dollars. I said, that's more or less it. So he said, well, how, much, how do you know what you're going to get? So I said, we had a program of selling forward our dollars at prices that we could live with. And so he said, well, how much of that do you do? And I said, well, there's about a billion dollars all the time rolling ahead of us. And he said, is your company worth a billion dollars? I said, no. So he said, so people, you're selling dollars that you don't have, and somebody else is paying for them with pounds that they don't have. I said, that's more or less it. <laughs> and it, it's a very big, it's a colossal roulette wheel. Because uh, the foreign currency markets, you've heard about all these shenanigans of banks cheating and all this stuff. Well, the foreign exchange markets are 98% froth and only 2% real. So when every month we had to go in and, and sell $100 million, the whole market would go against us. And it was very, very difficult to place our, our hedging in place. Whilst I was at Jaguar, the, the, um, the dollar went from 210 to the pound to 105. So doubling and halving our revenues. Right now it's at $1.50, $1.55. That's perfectly good for Jaguar cars. It's perfectly reasonable. It's when it goes over $2 to the pound that you really find it almost impossible to make a profit. So what you need is stability and our hedging programs in the main always made sure that we were profitably making the cars and selling them. But it makes it very tough and very difficult. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Sir John Egan. Thank you. Thank you. I'd just like to take this to your wife, Sir John, to say thank oh, you. Oh, thank so you. For being here this evening. And that's for the dog. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> we brought our Labrador dog with us.